Well, this morning we're going to continue looking at our hope in the gospel. As we begin the new year, we want to highlight the hope that we have every single day of our life, whether it's 2023 or whether it's any other day or year uh, in our lives. Throughout chapter 15, I mentioned last week that we're going to be looking at five key points regarding the hope of the gospel in our lives. Some of these points we're going to be looking at are truths regarding our hope. And some of these uh, uh, points that we're going to be looking at are realities of how Satan wants to take away our hope. And we're going to be continuing to look at Reality number one concerning the hope of the gospel, we began last week looking at this first reality, and that is from verses 1 to 11 that that Tim read this morning. Principle number one, reality number one, is that the hope of the gospel is rooted in Christ. Outside of Christ, there is no ultimate hope. Now, Now, you know, as well as I do, that God has given us so many good things in this world and in this life. Things for us to enjoy. We're not, we're not um, stoics who, who wanted to deny themselves pleasure uh, in order to be more spiritual. God's given us many wonderful things to enjoy in this life. But if we place our ultimate hope in any of those things, we're going to be left drastically wanting. Our hope as Christians has to be rooted in Jesus. And we saw last week from the first two verses of of, of chapter 15 that we know that our hope of the gospel is rooted in Christ because of the internal work that the gospel has done and is doing in our hearts as Christians. It's an, this is an internal reality. Verse 1 says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Paul's reminding them of this truth that was proclaimed to them. Just like we sang um, just a moment ago in The God of Calvary, the bridge of that song, if I never ever lose sight of your grace, it's going to be because I do not lose sight of the cross. That's the Pereira paraphrase. The cross is before us, and if the cross is before us, we are living in the reality of God's grace on a daily level. We have to remind ourselves of the gospel. We talked last week about how we've received the gospel. Paul says, I want to remind you of this gospel. It's a gospel I preached to you. You received it. You stand in it. We talked about the mind, the ears, and the heart. We we hear the gospel with our ears. We receive the message with our minds. And the gospel calls us to respond in our hearts. We talked about last week that, that this gospel, it, it, it's, it's a, a past, present, future work. They, they believed the gospel. They received it. And now at the end of verse 1, it says you're standing in it. And that's where the battles come, right? As we stand in the hope and in the truth of the gospel, a present day reality. And then it also says at the beginning of verse 2, and by which you are being saved. This is both a present and a future work. The gospel began, the, the message of the gospel was implanted into our hearts. It started a work, it is doing a work, and it will continue until the day Christ returns. How are you standing in the gospel today? You know what's really interesting in the book of Ephesians, and I mentioned a couple weeks ago or last week or whatever, I've been doing some st- a lot of studying, kind of living in Galatians, also been living in Ephesians, and, and it's so interesting in Ephesians when it talks about the armor of God. 
And it says, put on the armor of God so that you can stand against the attacks of the devil. And you know, throughout that passage, it never talks about taking on the armor of God and gaining ground, like moving forward. You know what the armor of God, what it tells us? It says, put on the armor of God so that you can stand firm. You see, it's, it's the work of, of Christ to gain ground. He is the victor. We are not the victors in and of ourselves. What, what the scriptures, what the Lord calls us to do is to stand firm in the truth that we know to be true. Not to run backwards, not to try to go forwards in our own strength, but to stand firm in our hope. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. How many times do we get frustrated in the Christian life because rather than standing in the gospel, we try to go in our own strength? In the end of verse 2 that we, we concluded with, it says, we are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. You see, we are to hold fast to this message of God's grace. We're not to relinquish. We're not to move as, as God told Joshua. We're not to go to, to the right or to the left. No, we are to continue firmly in this message. We persevere in the gospel. This is all an internal work that is happening in our hearts. But the scriptures do not just leave us telling us that, listen, the gospel is real. You can have your confidence in the gospel. It's doing an internal work. No, the gospel also is, it gives us an external confidence. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in verses 3 to 11. We know the gospel is true, not just because of the work it is doing inside of us. There is an external confidence that we can look to in our assurance of the reality of the work of the gospel in our lives. So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to be at work. And we're going to look at verses 3 to 11. Father, I pray that the work that you desire to do in hearts, that you would accomplish that. Lord, I cannot do that. Lord, individually, we cannot somehow accomplish something in our hearts, in our own efforts and in our own strength. Uh, Lord, both the preacher and the ones who are listening, we are totally dependent upon you this morning. Lord, would that be freeing? Would that be convicting? Would that be encouraging? Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, to our minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We are given in this passage an external confidence that what we, if you are a follower of Jesus today, if you have turned from your sin and you have looked to a Savior, the confidence that you have in your life today is not simply internal, but we can look externally and see evidences of the reality of the gospel. What is the first external Reason for confidence that we can have. I'm going to give you three through these verses today. The first external confidence that we have is the very content of the gospel message. In verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of, and get this, first importance, what I also received. This is an external message. In fact, this language, I, have, I uh, am delivering to you what I also received, it's, it's the same language we read of in chapter 11 
in verse 23 concerning the Lord's Supper. There, Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. In other words, this this message isn't something that Paul just came up with. In the context of chapter 11, it's instruction regarding the Lord's Supper. In chapter 15 here, it is the very message of the gospel. This is not something that Paul or just a group of individuals came up with. This is an external message. In the day, there would be false teachers that would come in and say, I have received uh, a word from the Lord, much like our day today in many situations. And this was something that, that there would be a small group of false teachers that would come into the church and try, try to sway their faith. In fact, we have that in chapter 15. Individuals were saying, there is no resurrection of the dead. If you do any reading concerning our great gift of justification, that we have been declared righteous, not because of our own efforts, but because of the efforts of Jesus. You won't read too long until you come across a phrase called alien righteousness. That's not talking about some type of UFOs that are completely perfect. Alien simply has the idea of something that is outside of ourselves. So if you ever are reading uh, in, in, in a, a, a Christian book, um, you're, you're reading about justification. It talks about alien righteousness. What that means is a righteousness that does not come from within. It comes completely from outside of us and has been given to us. The gospel is good news because it is an alien message. It is a message that completely comes from outside of us. It's not about us. It is about Jesus and what he has done. You've heard me say before, um, and and this isn't original with me, but if the gospel message had anything to do with myself or yourself as the originator or having any part in that good news, it would cease to be good news. The gospel is good news because it comes completely from outside of us. That is what I am referring to, the external confidence when we talk about the content of the gospel. We can have hope in the gospel because the gospel has no sense of origin or source within us. This is an external message. I like what what's, uh, uh, two individuals said. I'm going to have this on the screen for you. Our salvation is from outside ourselves. I find salvation, get this, because I think we get this wrong as Christians. I find salvation not in my life story, but only in the story of Jesus Christ. Only those who allow themselves to be found in Jesus Christ, in the incarnation, cross, and resurrection, are with God and God with them. Now, we may say that is amen to that with our, with our heads, theologically, amen to that. But how about your life? Are you gauging the goodness of God? Are you gauging your salvation? Are you gauging the good news that you have to cling to based upon what's going on in your story? Do you see how easy we can shift, even if it's just a little bit, from the centrality of the cross and make it about us. What happens when you shift your... I don't, I don't uh, drive a boat or an airplane, but think about it. If Maybe if you're driving even a vehicle and, and your car is a little bit out of alignment and you don't do the kind of the course correct, the real annoying thing where you're holding your steering wheel like this... You know, at first, let's say you're, you're, you're in a plane or in a boat especially, at first it doesn't seem 
like there's that much of a difference if you're just a tad off. But man, you start going 100 yards, 200, 300, 400, you start going, you start going further and further out, man, you get more and more deviated from the center, don't you? You don't notice it at first that much. Man, that's, that's one of the, the problems that we have in our Christian life. We easily justify, we easily reconcile and rationalize being off just a little bit. But man, we continue in that trend. And before you know it, our life is a train wreck. Whether that's mentally or emotionally or circumstantially, all of these things, we've deviated. And before you know it, it's, Lord, what's happened? We have to be focused on the good news of, the, of Christ. One of the things that, that I've been doing in my devotions is, is saying, Lord, would you take today's scripture and would it not just be about getting through a passage or about the words on the text, no matter how dry that text may immediately seem, would you take the word I'm completely dependent upon you, and would you teach me from it? And it's not like lightning bolts always come, come out of the sky, but I can't tell you how many times there's a nugget that the Holy Spirit brings to, to my mind to give me strength for the day. It is every day we are being entirely humble, admitting our need, our weakness, in saying, Christ, I need you today. I need to be filling my mind, my ears, my heart with truth because I'm going to be getting all sorts of untruth coming at me today. And I don't want to start having to be like this and realize one day I'm so far off that I've got to do a major course correction. How much easier it is to keep those small accounts I need to shift back. This is an external message of hope. The content of the gospel, it has to start with realizing the message of the gospel is outside of us. And what's that going to lead us to is the gospel we're going to come to realize is a purely Christ-centered message. It's all about Jesus. It's not about how I'm doing. It's not about how well I feel like I'm progressing and why am I not progressing at the, at the amount and the amount of time that I wish I was. The gospel's not about that. It's about Jesus. And there's four main verbs in, 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 in these next verses that, that talk about what exactly the gospel concerning Jesus is about. And this is of first importance. In other words, if we don't get this, everything else is going to be off. Now here's the content. The Christ-centered message of the gospel. It says in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. And we're going to talk about who he appeared to in a bit. But there you see four verbs of what Christ has accomplished. He died, he was buried, um, he, he rose, he was raised, and he appeared. Now, how Paul lays this out is he really lays out two fundamental truths regarding the message of the gospel and then one phrase under each of those truths that show the reality, the external reality that proves the message of the gospel. We know the two main port parts because it, they both say according to the scriptures. So let's look at this. Uh, part number one, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Isn't that a grand and glorious truth to know that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there is not a single sin, past, present, future, that has not been dealt with, has not been atoned for 
by the sacrifice of Jesus. Not a single one. When we come to the Lord, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that confession, it means not that we're somehow having to do penance for our sins or we're coming to the Lord to say the same thing about our sins that we know is true. And it's not a begging God for forgiveness. What is it? It is a claiming of the forgiveness that has already been granted to us because of Christ's sacrifice. So tomorrow when you sin, today when you sin, it doesn't take God by surprise. It has been dealt with on the cross. And we cling to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Christ died for our sins. Man, when we get a true sense of just how sinful we are, And one of the reasons that the Israelites, it was so difficult for them sometimes to let go of the Jewish law, the very thing that was meant to point them to Christ, was because the Jewish law, it was so laborious. You know, like Hebrews talks about, you're making sacrifices all the time, and and, you you can breathe a sigh of relief one day, but then, you know, there's the next day that you have to present your sin offering And yet what Jesus did was once for all. Doesn't it seem too good to be true? In fact, I've had people that that say, you know what, it just doesn't make sense. I'll never forget, um, and I've probably maybe shared this before, um, but when I was uh, working in the summer, I was going to be going to seminary um, in the fall, and I was working with all sorts of international students at this greenhouse in, in, in Orlando. You have also, you know, the tropical climate, you have all sorts of greenhouses. You know, I, and there are there guys from Turkey, from Russia, um, from um, uh, uh, se- several other countries that, that, that escaped my mind. They were foreign exchange students, and they were very smart men. Uh, there was a particular guy from Siberia, Max Pakulski. And uh, I would try to share, to share the gospel with him. And, and there was a language barrier. He, he did speak English. It was very uh, broken English. But, but he was getting some of the things I was saying. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there were some things that, that he was having trouble with. I'll never forget that I printed off the gospel message. I, I found a, this website that did translations. And I translated, trans, clicked the Rush, Russia the Russian language, and I, and I printed it out and gave it to him. I said, hey, read this tonight. And, and I'll never forget the next day, I said, hey, you know, did you get a chance to, to read that? And, and when he saw it in his own language, he, he very quickly said, I do not believe. Because, and the biggest stumbling block to him was this idea of the forgiveness of sins no matter what sin it is certainly there would have to be some greater penance that would have to take place. The message, we would be tempted to say that the message is too good to be true were it not for that little phrase there, according to the Scriptures. You see, this is, remember, an alien message, a message from outside of us, not from the mind of man. It is all over the Old Testament the necessity for a final and a just and righteous payment for sin. And therefore, we put our hope not in some message that has its origins in man, but from the very mind of God. You think of Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve sin, and and sin enters into the world, and, and you have that first promise, that first hope of the gospel, that from the woman will come a seed who will crush the head of the serpent. 
you think of according to the scriptures of Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, when it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But what has the Lord done? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Folks, if we believe that the scriptures, that it is not man's message, it is God's, it will lead us right to the place that Christ has indeed died for our sins. And that we can turn to him if we never have to receive the full forgiveness of sins and a righteousness that comes outside of ourselves. Lest the scoffer during the first century when, when, when Paul is writing this would say, well, Christ didn't really die or lest even the 21st century agnostic or, or um, um, atheist would say Christ did not really die, that the supplemental point Paul brings in, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. How do we know that? Because it says in verse 4 that he was buried. There was a dead body that had to be put in the tomb. This was an actual historic event. This was proof of his death. And then what is the second main point of the gospel? Not only Christ died for our sins, this is in accordance with the scripture, but then it says in verse 4 that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Not only did Jesus die, but he was raised. A, a, a Messiah, a, 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 a Savior that remained dead would be no savior at all. There had to be a resurrection. And that's why Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 15 later, man, if the saints aren't raised, and that's an indicator that Jesus wasn't raised, and everything's in vain. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Did you know that not every passage in the Old Testament is about Christ, but did you know that every passage in the Old Testament leads us to Christ? It's not that it's, it, the, the Old Testament, every passage specifically speaks about Jesus. Then you start making up stuff, you know. Well, this really is meant to be this. No, it's that every passage in the Old Testament, kind of like the phrase, all roads lead to Rome, every passage will culminate in pointing us to Christ. If you're taking notes, you may want to write some of these things down. Did you know that in the Old Testament, as we think about in accordance with the Scriptures, did you know even the term, the third day, is used in a sense of completion? In Genesis 22 and verse 4, it was the third day that Abraham saw the place to which he was to sacrifice Isaac. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 11 and 15 and 16, it repeatedly says on the third day, God would meet with Israel on Mount Sinai. They were to prepare themselves for that third day. In Joshua 1 and verse 11, God tells Joshua to prepare the people because within three days the army will pass into Canaan to, to possess it. In Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2, in resurrection language, God says that he has brought judgment upon Israel, but on the third day they will face, they will experience renewal from exile. And of course you all know in Jonah 1 and verse 17, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And Jesus even says, so will the Son of Man be in the earth for three days and three nights. 
the hope of the resurrection, and even little clues like this repetition throughout the Old Testament of the third day being a day of, of, of action and completion points us according to the scriptures of God's great plan to resurrect Christ. Man, and we get to spend our whole lives studying and looking into these things. This isn't boring. This is exciting. Well, what's the phrase that he uses to support this second main point that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures? It says in verse 5, and that he appeared. The resurrection was not simply some private event where the disciples would lie to everyone and say, Jesus resurrected, but as some theories go, he simply, they simply hid the body. No, the reality was that he did not just, the message of the gospel is not just one that Jesus was raised from the dead and no one's there to verify it. There is external witnesses we see, and Paul now wants to lay this foundation. So if we are going to find an external confidence in the hope of the gospel, we first need to look at the content of the gospel, what we have before us. And then secondly, the gospel doesn't just tell us this. The gospel gives us an external assurance that these things are true. Look at these resurrection appearances. It says, then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. I would say that's pretty convincing, wouldn't you? I mean, the, 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 the Old Testament scripture just says at the mouth of two or three witnesses, we have 500 here at once. Most of whom are still alive. Of course, this is true during the first century, though some have fallen asleep. And Paul is going to talk about these believers that have fallen asleep and what's going to happen to these Christians. We'll, read, we'll, we'll uh, study that later. Then he appeared to James. This most likely is referring to Jesus' brother, who in Acts was one of the main elders of the Jerusalem church. Then to all of the apostles. And then notice verse 8. Last of all. In other words, at the bottom of the barrel. You know, nobody wants the dregs, right? I, I gave you that story of when my brothers and I would share our uh, 7-Eleven big gulps and no one wanted the last inch of that drink. Maybe you don't remember that. That's okay. You can imagine. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Peter, or Paul as well, is an eyewitness. What about this phrase, untimely born? What's that talking about? What he's saying is that his appearance, Jesus' uh, appearance to Paul which was later than any of the others. Remember, Paul sees Jesus on the road to Damascus in a vision. His appearance and Paul's very apostleship, it seemed out of place in comparison with the others. It did not fit. These other guys were followers of Jesus during his earthly ministry. And, and we're going to talk about Paul's background it did not seem to fit. It was out of place. It was something that naturally should not have happened. In fact, this word untimely born was actually, is actually used in the Old Testament of a, st of, a, of a stillborn child, of a miscarriage. This is the type of, of, of unnaturalness that Paul would see the resurrected Christ and would be called to be an apostle. Just as, as a mother can give an untimely birth that results in a miscarriage, 
In, in, in extra-biblical literature, in other words, um, this Greek word used outside of the context of Scripture, just in everyday writing and the culture, it was even used of first-century abortions. You notice how unnatural it was for Paul to be in this list. And we're going to talk about this in a second, but just to give us a heads up, the next time that we are so feeling inferior and we're looking at ourselves, yeah, if we look at ourselves, we definitely can and maybe sometimes even should feel inferior. But even the Apostle Paul He looks at all of these other people and he says, in and of myself, I should not be in this list. You may feel inferior in this local church body. Is that a message that's sourced in the gospel or is that a message that is sourced in something else? So as we look at this long list And Paul just kind of summarizes it here for us, but there's a lot in here. What's our takeaway when it comes to Jesus' appearances to all of these people? Obviously, number one, the resurrection has been verified. It is true. But what about as we are living our Christian lives? Well, I'm glad you asked because I think 1 Peter gives us the answer. In chapter 1 and verse 3 of 1 Peter, Paul, uh, Peter is talking about the resurrection, Christ's resurrection. And then he talks about hardships that Christians experience. And then what he says is he says, though you have not seen him, talking to these Christians, and we can lump ourselves in, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How blessed it was to be able to see the resurrected Christ physically. But most Christians throughout history have not had that privilege. But Jesus gives us a special blessing that those of us that without seeing him love him, we rejoice in him, we persevere in our faith knowing that we will obtain the outcome of our faith which is the the ultimate salvation of our souls. We are blessed. We are actually the ones in the privileged position. So if we are going to take confidence in the hope of the gospel, we're going to take confidence in the content of the gospel, the assurance of the gospel, that it is true. And then, lastly, we are going to take confidence in the working of God's grace. This is both, as we talk about external confidence, this is both an internal and an external confidence. Going back to Paul who says, man, I'm the least of all, but he appeared to me. Again, he says he's the least of all in verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Here's the answer why Paul feels so inferior, why it was like an untimely birth that Paul is listed among this group. He's unworthy. Why? Because he he literally persecuted the church of God. He was totally contrary to this message. You may say Paul, he had a terrible past. You, You could say he was tainted goods. But yet God had other plans. You see, we can find confidence not in and of ourselves, but confidence in the working of God's grace. I want to share with you a couple things about God's grace. First of all, 
the favor of God, which God's grace is God's favor, his undeserved favor. The favor of God is indiscriminate. The Bible says he is not a respecter of persons. And here Paul categorizes himself as the least. He categorizes himself as unworthy. This is not Paul having a pity party. There is true, real baggage that Paul has. We note the sin here. He persecuted the church of God. One person I was in discussion with um, uh, one time, I don't necessarily agree with, with, with this, this viewpoint, um, but, but it does give you cause to think. This person was saying, you know, Paul mentioned the thorn in the flesh that he struggled with. And different people, the Bible doesn't say exactly what that thorn was. Many people, as, you, as many of you know, they say it could have been his eyesight. Well, this person brought up the idea, well, maybe the thorn in the flesh was his past and that, that you know, Satan maybe, you know, trying to thwart him would continually be bringing up that past. And, 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 and I don't think that that's probably what Paul is talking about in the context of the thorn in the flesh, but it did cause me to think, you know what? I mean, we have the scriptures, but Paul lived every day of his life. I mean, we don't know Paul outside of what he wrote, but I wonder how much he did struggle with past guilt. And maybe that's a a, a besetting sin for you. To constantly doubt God's forgiveness, to to constantly question Am I, in comparison to others, how do I measure up as a follower of Jesus? Well, we can take heart with Paul's situation, can't we? We can take heart when, in the very beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1 and verse 26 through 31, Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. You see, God continually has to break us of our pride, break us of our self-sufficiency, break us of our independence to see that it is nothing of boast of self. It is all about Jesus. Maybe today you've been struggling so much because of a difficulty or a trial or a a health issue or whatever it is and God does not seem to be resolving that. Could it be that that is a blessing in disguise? That God is actually using that because without that difficulty you would not look to him. The favor of God is indiscriminate. It's not about us. And the favor of God is also transforming. Paul lists this great sin. I persecuted the church of God. We read that and gloss over that, but put that in real life circumstances. You have a guy that's literally out to to gather up and kill Christians. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 10 he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. I think that when Paul says I am what what I am, that this has both a past and present aspect to it. I think that Paul sees that while while he has a messed up past, 
that he has come to the point that he sees how God has even sovereignly been in that messed up past and he has used it according to his purposes to make him what he is today. Can you believe that God can can use and even is sovereignly involved in all of the, the, the sins and wrong choices that we have made. Not that he is the author of sin or that he tempts with sin, but somehow past our understanding, he is in that orchestrating even those bad things to complete the purposes he has for us. Man, that gives me great confidence. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Can you say that today? No matter where you're at, that it's by God's grace that I am what I am today. This doesn't mean complacency that, oh, I'm just complacent, I'm good. No, God's grace is transformative. That Paul can see God's transformation in his life. And what happens is that internal work produces itself outwardly. And verse 10 keeps going. He says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, it just wasn't void of, of, of any results. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This presents us a third aspect of this favor, this grace of God, that it spurs us to action. See, God doesn't extend his grace in futility. It always accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. But as God gives us this grace, and we begin to see that it's not about us, it is about Jesus, and we begin to have the heart of Jesus, and we start to become passionate and burdened for the things that he is passionate and burdened for, it calls us to action, but this action is not a selfish action of, oh, look at what I have done here, and look at what I've done here. Paul is not bragging. You see, we can wallow in ourselves sometimes when we talk about our past. Woe is me. We can also wallow in ourselves when we talk about our accomplishments. And that's not what Paul's doing. Paul directs all of the glory to God. Even though you could say he worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That word worked harder is the word toil. In fact, Paul tells Ananias the prophet when, when after Paul, uh, Paul, then known as Saul, had the vision, Ananias is scared to go to Paul and he says, Go, for he is a, a trustworthy instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and get this, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Wow, the one who once caused suffering would now suffer. And God had great plans for Paul, and I think that those that know the lowliness, know the bitterness of sin the most, are often those that know God's grace the most. That serve Him the most fervently and sincerely. And here you have Paul, who's the least, and yet is known as working the hardest. And it is all to the glory of God's grace. As we close in verse 11... Paul concludes with this thought. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. You want to know another reason why we can have confidence in the gospel? Not simply because of the content of the gospel, 
not simply because of the assurance of the gospel, but also because of the consistency of the gospel. Paul basically says in verse 11, regardless of the preacher, the same gospel of Christ is preached. If it conforms with the message of verses 3 to 5, it is the true gospel. The gospel isn't, again, it's not invented by human minds that we can, we can deviate the message. We don't have that freedom. There's, there's a lot of secondary issues that good Christians can disagree on, but not the message of the gospel. Absolutely not. And we can base our hope because no matter who it is, the message of the gospel must conform to this truth. It is not my version of the gospel. And we have to then cling to this message. Paul says, whether it was I or someone else, and man, the, the Corinthian church was so set on taking the validity of a message, basing it on who, they, who was saying it and who they chose to follow, and whose opinions seemed to match their own. Paul says, no. The gospel is a unifying message, and there is one message to the gospel. We preached it, and you believed it. And therefore, going back to what Paul said at the beginning of this passage, we must hold fast to the word. Are you holding fast this morning? We're going to see next week in verses 12 to 19, the second aspect of the gospel, that there are attacks on the very hope of the gospel. So if we are not committing to hold fast to the gospel, whether that is through the front door that someone's denying the truths of verses 3 to 5, or whether that is through the back door denying the gospel, that we start to make it about ourselves, we have to be on guard. Do not let your hope be lost. Thank you.